you know, I, I'm not particularly religious about any particular platform. My favorite social media is email marketing from the 1990s, if anyone remembers that. <laughs> uh, but I think email marketing is alive and well if you do it well. And, and so, but I do love brevity. And I think the tiny bites matter. And I think kind of getting someone to take the first little tapas bite and then the second little perfect bite. And then when they're ready, people don't want a lot to consume until they are ready. From cave drawings to family histories to stories around the fire, humans crave order among chaos, connection amid isolation. So we tell stories. Our mission at the Storytellers Network is to bring the art of story to the masses. Whether you're in marketing, you're an entrepreneur, or you're developing your own personal brand, telling your story effectively can make the difference between celebrating milestones and collecting unemployment. The Storytellers Network strives to help storytellers tell their stories so you can learn from the best. Now, your host, Dan Moyle. Welcome to the Storytellers Network. I am so glad you're listening today. Uh, I believe in the power of story. Hopefully you do too, since you're listening. And today I get to talk with someone else who believes in the power of story very deeply and tells great stories. Now, before I get there, very quick reminder, everything you need to know is at the storytellersnetwork.com, past episodes, some great guests, resources to help you tell a better story and contact information for me so that we can have a conversation if you'd like. Now, my guest today is an author, a marketing consultant, strategist, and he's a speaker, uh, among other titles and skills. He's also just a good guy with a terrific outlook and a desire to help, inspire, and teach. Chris Brogan has written several books, publishes a terrific newsletter every week, and runs Owner's Media Group with Rob Hatch. Uh, we get to learn about Chris's story, how hitting a house with his bicycle paints the picture of entrepreneurship for him, and so much more as we get to Chris Brogan's stories. Hey, Chris, thanks for joining me today on the Storytellers Network. It's a pleasure to have you here, man. My total pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we were talking beforehand. I've been watching your uh, career for a while. I've been following you, man. It's, this is absolutely awesome. I consider you a storyteller. Do you consider yourself one as well? I do. I, I think that to me, the, the way you sort of segregate that is that there are people who talk with sort of a one sentence way to get something said. And there's people who want you to get through sort of a, a bridge or an arc of ideas. And I think that storytellers, you know, a lot of people like your, your people that you've been interviewing know that a story is the best retention unit that you could possibly have. So to me, that's the win. Yeah, that's, that's what I've learned. And I, I mean, I guess I kind of knew that, I suppose, but story solidifies what facts tell, stories sell, right? Um, sure, yeah. But they just connect us so much. Um, did you, was there a point in your life where you realized that you had that gift to do it professionally in a way? Well, um, I, I mean, starting as far back as age five, I kept telling people I was an author, um, but I was awesome. five, so it wasn't very good. Um, I've always felt that, that I always wanted to be a better storyteller than I am or was, you know what I mean? I, but I'm half Irish. So I can say that, you know, that's in my blood. I can tell you that they also, I mean, I just, I think people who live in their head a lot uh, make for storytellers, you know, and I lived in uh, the capital city of Augusta, Maine, which was, uh, as we were saying earlier, before we recorded, too big to really be a city and too small to be the country. And so I just was always in my head thinking about superheroes and science fiction stuff and Star Trek and everybody around me was not. And I think that you start making stories when you feel like you can't connect with people about what's right in front of you as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, I had, 
I've thought about a lot of things over the last year with this show, a year and a half, but I haven't thought about that. I did make up stories as a kid when I couldn't feel like I connected. So that's a good point. Um, how, how important do you think it is to tell our own story as part of what we do either in marketing and business or just storytelling in general? How important is it to be authentic as it were transparent about our own story? Uh, well, so the, those are two words that to me are sort of fraught with peril. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that authentic and transparent are things that everyone says you're supposed to be. Um, and I think that's not exactly true. I think you either are or aren't as straightforward and pure as you are. And I, and I get that from paying attention to professional comedians. To me, uh, there's a big difference between uh, stream of consciousness type comedy versus someone really trying to put something together. And I love Mike Birbiglia as a storytelling comedian, for instance. His uh, Netflix special, Thanks, Thank God for Jokes, is like a master class in learning how to tie lots of disparate storylines together through one uh, through line and, and making a story that's really solid. Another comedian I really love is John Mulaney for the same reason. And John is a very stylized comic. He's not up there you know, re- reacting to the current moment of life. He's, he's, he's telling a story in a way that's kind of laying it, laying it out in a good way. Now, should you be exactly who you are? You should be a stylized version of who you are. Uh, I always say that there's kind of a Perez Hilton. Who, this is such an old reference. It's like 15 years old. I got to probably pick someone new. Uh, but there's like that hot mess line between uh, like what TMZ would want to show about your authentic self, which is the parts you least want to talk about versus not showing that aggrandized, idealized side. This is important, Dan. I would say that places, uh, social media overall, but places like Instagram and whatnot have really taught us to to really make an top-of-the-shelf idealized version of us, and that's not what I'm saying either. Mm -hmm. I'm saying if you're like a bit poopy and wrong and weird or bad or whatever you think you are, you should make the best version of poopy, wrong, weird, and bad you are but don't leave it to chance. That's the, that's the, I'm struggling to get the right sentence for you. But what I'm saying is don't be authentic, be real. Okay. So little different. Yeah. A little difference between authentic and real because I, cause I, so I've thought of it this way for, for what it's worth. I've thought of authentic is not necessarily completely raw and here's everything, but like I am who I am. I'm, I'm real. I kind of, I've kind of saw them as the same way, but I see the difference. Um, because I see you as being real, you know, even, even lately you've been talking about some of your presentations you're working on and how you want to talk to companies about like things like mental health and depression and anxiety in the workplace. I'm guessing because you come at it from a very personal side, right? Yeah. So on the one hand, it's because I deal with a very mild clinical depression and I think that it's, uh, it's nice to be able to model that and say, you can do this and operate a business. You can do this and uh, you know, be part of a company. And uh, my big premise right now is that we're all a little bit dented. You know, I had lunch with someone who had uh, really bad abuse problems, you know, that he, he had to deal with. I, I've dealt with people who have dealt with uh, PTSD coming back from military experiences and whatnot. And uh, these people have significant challenges and they can thrive and they can do good work. And, uh, you know, in, in my Again, that big difference between authentic and real. Authentic or, or what people seem to want to think is authentic is you just throw everything that's in front of you out, unedited, pure, and raw. And people say that they want that, but they really don't. They want a, they want a, a curated and trimmed version. They want the Brazilian of this uh, opportunity. 
bet you didn't see that one coming. I didn't see that one coming. Well played. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's purposefully authentic, maybe, right? Like, right. Like uh, I choose what I share, but I'm real. You and I are both trying to also say, but that that means you know, not trying to hide you your good flaws. And I'm saying I'm not saying hide flaws. I'm saying highlight the flaws, but you know, take out some of the extra stuff, the extra errata. You know, every one of us, especially creative people, every one of us has like 186 things we do, but it's just never going to stick in anyone's head. We got to say two or three and call it a day. That's what I'm saying. Okay. That sounds, that makes sense. I think. Um, so, so if what we love about stories is the connection, uh, the, you know, learning all these things, what is it about story that that's challenging? What challenges you as a storyteller? To me, I would say that one of the most important challenges in dealing with story is you have to serve the story. And I think that people creating stories often err on the side of saying really flourishing phrases, let's say, or they, they want to be extra thorough. My, my colleague, uh, Rob Hatch, who works on the Owner Media Group project with me, Rob wants to explain something and he wants to explain something in vast depth where we don't need the depth. We need two sentences to get what he's saying and then move on to the part that he really wants to talk about. And so every time Rob says to me, hey, can you look at this piece? Something doesn't make sense to me. I always come and take away two or 300, 400 words of it because of that. So I think storytelling, there, there's two challenges. You, know, you must serve the story is, is the primary reason of a story in the first place, right? I need to get someone from here to here and I have to kill all the darlings that don't do that. And then second, can I turn a phrase just here and there that makes it real in my words? Um, we have the weirdest challenge, uh, and very similar to the way comedians work too, we have the weirdest challenge in that we have to say something that people can relate to and people can like really feel resonance inside themselves with. But if we use someone else's words, I just said this the other day, um, if you quote someone else's words, I'm going to forget that you said them. Mm-hmm. because there's someone else's words, right? If you walk through it, like someone, uh, I was talking about quitting and failing today and someone said, yeah, like fail faster. I was like, yeah, but the minute you say that, I'm not thinking of you anymore. Like you're, you're using someone else's brand. And so to me, that's the two big challenges in story. Serve the story as cleanly as you can and, and turn phrase so that it's your words, not anyone's words. So I want to get back to the editor thing in a minute here, but I want to chase this down for a second. When you're talking about quotes, uh, in, in a few of the books that I've listened to or read lately, people will use quotes from other folks in, in a few ways. One of them is to like start a chapter, which I find interesting. I don't, I don't hate it, but I also like, do you need that really? Um, but also use quotes or information from others to shore up what they're saying, right? Is there a place to quote others in storytelling? You, do we just have to be more careful about it? Or, or are you saying like, just give me your own stuff? Oh, so when I'm saying quotes, I don't necessarily mean just quoting someone's great sentence or whatever. I mean, I I love that, you know, some things I say are quoted over and over again and that show up in very strange places. Uh, I'm I'm honored, you know, that some of the sentences I say get into weird apps uh, and whatnot. So that's cool. But what I mean is if you use phrases like hustle, 
a billion other people have hustle. Escape from Cubicle Nation, Pam Slim, that was her words. What's your side hustle? Uh, side Hustle Academy now with Chris Gillibo, Gary Vaynerchuk, hustle. The word hustle is so overprinted that, that no one should own the word anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And, and all those people are lovely and that word is not a bad word. But, you know, if you start writing about the hustle in your stupid book or your story, I'm out. Like, I, I can't hear it anymore. Gotcha. So it's more like labels than, than quotes. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. quoting, you know, in a labeled sense. If you use something, fake it till you make it. Uh, if you use someone's little parables, you're going to run into the habit of or the mistake of people are going to just hear someone else's words in your mouth and it's just not going to feel like your words. So you got, you got to own your story and, and figure that out without those labels. I get it. Yeah, that's good. So, so let's go back to the editor thing. You, you, as you are, as I call it editor, you're editing Rob stuff. Sure. I got to believe it. So it's important to have an editor. We can establish that, right? How, how do you find someone to help edit you and then let go of like the personal thing? Cause that's one of the things that I struggle with. My, my, my wife is an amazing editor for me. She's also very analytical, (laughs) which is what makes her a good editor, but other people have, have done that for me as well, but it's always painful for me to have somebody edit my stuff. And I go, "Ah, even when you've made it better, that's hard. Do you have someone that you trust for that? And how did you find that person? Um, similar to you, my fiance, Jack is probably my, my first editor, um, Mm. in my books and everything else. She's edited a couple of my books now. Um, what I, so I have two, two answers at the same time. One is that as, as a, uh, Shambhala Buddhist, one of the things about Buddhism is you kind of try to let everything go and not have hold on too many things in your life at all, period. So if I have a sentence, I love to death and someone else says, you know, screw that sentence. It's a terrible sentence. Um, I think it's a, um, I, I, I kill the sentence, right? Like that, that's a writing thing called kill your darlings or kill your babies. People hate they, using the word babies, but that's what I say in my head when I say it. Um, but that means nothing is sacred. Destroy everything. Uh, like Kylo Ren says, you know, uh, let go of the past and if you can't uh, kill it or whatever. Um, there you go. Ky- Kylo Ren and Brazilian in the same story. Dan. So that's number one. About editing. Buddhism and the same thing. Like, yes, sir. <laughs> um, number two about editing is that oftentimes one of the best things an editor can do for you or me or anyone else is remind us that people don't get it all the time. And people sometimes don't, you're, you could be ahead in your, in your idea because you have this sort of back soundtrack of the other words that shore up a sentence. That editor comes along and says, I don't even have a clue what you're trying to get to me here, Dan. It's important to eat that and go, okay, fine. I need a few more sentences to shore this up or I need to not use this right now. My, um, one of my best uh, uh, freelance book editors that's out there in the world is this lady named Ginny Best Monroe. And the first time I ever worked with her in a book, she said one time, do you know you have something like 708 instances of the word things in your writing? And I said, I sure don't. <laughs> she goes, kill them all. And I was like, oh gosh. So that's what a great editor can do for you. Okay. So just letting it go and trusting and just get over it basically. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> My pleasure. Yeah. I let it go. Just like I'm uh, frozen. There you go. And, and do you find yourself leaning on those folks, not only for books, but for the other writing or the, the other storytelling you do, whether it's presentations or other forms of storytelling? No, nay, never. Um, I don't <laughs> like editing. Uh, I, <laughs> which makes me a bad author. And I can tell you that out of all the books I've written, 
I usually write about 100 to 130 pages and then throw that entire 100 something pages in the trash and then I write the book. And I don't know why and I wish I was more efficient and I am not. And Seth Godin said a few choice negative words in a funny way about me and that and or said, hey, there's an opportunity. Uh, but I'm not the best uh, at that. And I can tell you that my ex-wife has a great phrase that I love very much. She says, editing is good manners. Editing for brevity, I do it every turn. Everything I can do to make something clearer and more brief, I'm all on it. But editing sort of in the sense of, gee, I got to make sure these are the best words. Nah, they just go out there. I have no uh, superiority needs. I have no uh, need to have been sure that I said the right words. And uh, good enough is good enough for me. Hmm. I like that. Maybe not be for everybody, but I like that. Well, you Um, know, Cookie Monster and us. You know, C is for cookie. That's good enough for him. Enough editing is good enough for us. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of reminds me too of the entrepreneurial idea of the MVP. Get the minimal viable product out there. You can change it later if you need to, but just get the idea there in a, in a cohesive, coherent way. 100%. Yeah. Think of how many people don't start or don't finish something because they don't have the quote unquote right thing. Oh. Um, Microsoft were wizards of this in the 90s. Microsoft would be the second to market on all kinds of innovation. And they would do it better because they were like, ah, we don't have to be number one. We could just take our moment here and do it. Well, first mover advantage is a thing. And so some of the people who were first to market stayed first to market and couldn't, you know, Microsoft couldn't unseat them. And I think now even more so, I think there's a real opportunity to, if you get a good enough something in front of someone, then you're going to have a better experience than if you wait until you have the right something. Yeah. And that, I mean, I think that's just an important thing to kind of hammer down to or hammer on is like, uh, so at, at one of my past jobs, I created over 500 videos to help with our marketing, but also to help home buyers. And, and my first videos were not good. Not that my last ones were the, like the best ever, but they, you start somewhere. We all suck when we start. Sure. Like just, just own that. It's okay. <laughs> No question about it. You know, someone told me this and I I steal it as often as I can. You know, no one's going to watch your first five or six or first 500 or 600 YouTube videos anyway. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter. Just get them out there. You know, we worry so bad. Oh, everyone's going to watch it. I wish I had that problem. I, (laughs) you know, I have 340 something thousand Twitter followers and I tweet links to my YouTube all the time and I'll get like 45 views on a video. And I'm like, where did everybody go? Right. So, you should be so lucky that everyone's going to judge you. I know. <laughs> Take the judgment. <laughs> um, so I'm going to get back to uh, the owners uh, media group that you talked about, right? OMG. Um, sure. you, and, you and Rob. Tell me a little bit more about that. I want to know, what is that? Yeah. So I have two companies that I run right now. One's called Owner Media Group with Rob Hatch. And then the other one's called Chris Brogan Media. And the Chris Brogan Media is kind of the newer stuff that I'm doing for corporations and all that. Owner Media Group was built to serve entrepreneurs and smaller businesses. And we basically sell skills and tools to help people kind of improve elements of their business. So that is we sell webinars and we sell courses Uh, and those webinars and courses, and we have a little private group coaching community and that sort of thing. Those materials are out there for everything from uh, doing better at email marketing and video and all those kind of bait and tackle kind of things, block and tackle things, uh, to 
covering how do you how do you design a digital product? How do you uh, market in a way that's going to reach the right person, not every person? And you know, I'm always kind of tweaking around to find what's what's a what's a webinar or a course, depending on how much information I need to deliver, that I can give to someone that's going to have an immediate opportunity for them to earn some revenue back. And so I've been at that for years now and had a couple of different company names along the way, but owner media group since I think 2014. And the experience has been fun because we, we do a sort of a membership option for either just webinars or we do a membership option for the whole kit and caboodle. And it's sort of like Netflix for smarts. Uh, I would, I would liken it to masterclass, but the difference is the masterclass has a lot of really thin content with big names. And I have lots of dense content with uh, schlubs like me. (laughs) Right on. So, so it sounds like you're one of your passions, maybe if I'm assuming something is to help others and teach. Yeah. I I mean, for one way or another, since I, you know, became Chris Brogan instead of just that idiot, Chris Brogan, uh, (laughs) it's been, one way or another, creating information that helps somebody figure something out. So using the uh, technology to drive better human interaction is probably the easiest uh, banner over all of it. Um, I try to teach companies how to be more human. I'm always working on that. Like, how do I, how do I work on something that's going to give companies, you know, personalized business experiences and whatnot? Like, what's that going to look like? And so that's what I spend my time doing. And story has to be a big part of that then I would guess, right? hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. Um, so on, on the story side of things, where do you find your inspiration to keep telling those stories and to tell specific ones? So um, I have t- two answers to that. One is that I almost always try to tell new stories, which is awful. Um, I, I've had so many people say to me, Brogan, that's so dumb. Like play the hits, right? Like, Um, there's a story that's gone around forever that the Beach Boys keep threatening to come back. But the problem is Brian, what's his name? The singer wants really bad to do the new Beach Boy stuff that they were working on when they broke up and everyone else in the whole wide world wants to hear like I get around. (laughs) And so it'll almost likely never happen because they can't agree on that. I make new content all the time and people are like, dude, just play the hits. You've got so much content that you could just play the same thing over and over again. And I said, I know, but you know, I'm just not that kind of rock band. So problem number one, number two, where I get ideas is every single day. I am, I have more ideas than I'll ever have time to write or create any material around. Um, Frequently asked questions is a great place to look. I, I read current news. You know, I'll give you a super simple, easy example from moments before you when I got on this call. I was reading about the fact that uh, Walmart is working on a new kind of tablet, you know, an Android tablet, not to sell an Android tablet because who cares, but a more Walmart branded piece of device because the way Amazon got as far into Walmart's territory as they did was Amazon made it easy to buy from them via a variety of types of devices. And so Walmart's like, oh, we need to make a new kind of distribution where we have direct access to people who want to buy the stuff we're selling. And I think, oh, that's really interesting. That direct access piece is the piece that I can lift and make a story out of. So I'm forever finding, I want to add a third thing. I'm forever finding my content where I can give someone an idea that might be useful to their business, no matter the size of their business, from articles that flow by. The other piece of this story is I very, very wide net for what I read. Because what I least want to read is industry news. Uh, 
I don't follow any, you could name 26 other uh, people that you consider your contemporaries. Like when you and I went to that conference, I don't read guys blog. I don't read any of those people. Why? I love them all. I love every one of them, but they're all talking about what I would talk about. <laughs> so I go read things about um, what kindergarten is working on these days, you know, because it's interesting if you're teaching it at this level in a school, what does that extrapolate on? I look at trends in various industries like the automotive industry, because if self-driving cars are a big thing, what else changes downhill? So my third is, you know, go look for content way outside of your industry. But definitely take in content, right? Like, oh, you know, be a writer, you should be a reader kind of thing. Yeah, I just got done saying don't ever say other people's stuff, but readers are leaders is really reasonable and real for a reason. And the fact that if we don't uh, consume a lot of material, we're just bound to write horrendous stuff. I just got an email from a nice lady who wants me to promote her work. And I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, I don't think this woman's read a book in 26 years. I could name 14 books that are exactly this book. And so I'm going to be nice and be like, hey, check out this book. But it's, it's, it's been written 26 other ways over the years. So I feel like, you know, don't read your industry as one piece of advice, but read something. Because if you don't, if you don't have a new spin on it, I mean, we don't need so many of the books that get published every year, which is why nobody buys them. 96% of business books sell less than 5,000 copies. Wow. That's a, that's a startling stat. I have a business book idea, but I may have to go a different route. <laughs> yeah, I can make it worse for you, Dan. Um, people on average, according to the U.S. Department of Labor and Statistics, read only 19 minutes a day. That includes text, email, and any kind of textual content, whatever. They read 19 minutes a day. They're not reading our dumb book unless it's an amazing life-changing book. Unless like someone big said, holy crap, you got to read this book. If Bill Gates says you should read this book, think about that one. You maybe should consider it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm always up for whoever wants to launch their next book club, but Bill Gates is a multi-billionaire. I'll pay a little more attention to what he thinks I should know. <laughs> right. How, as, as, a, as a leader in this space, how often do you get pitched for that kind of help is that a normal thing daily that's that's yeah. that's a part of the trade i guess i mean yeah. I, I don't know i get sent books probably de depends on the week uh but but between like say five and 14 books a week and um 90 plus percent of them i don't even crack the cover there i could tell you from the cover i could i could hold i could go right over to my bookshelf right now where i keep them when i first get them I could pull a fistful of them down and show you and go, Dan, look, which of these is different than the others? And you go, I don't know. I don't, I don't see any difference. Yeah. And they're all different authors and they all say kind of the same thing. Um, it'll be a book with like a, some kind of weird stick figure on it or one item. It'll be a solid background besides that. And, you know, 27 something or others, whatever that number is that they're going to give me, you know, because lists have numbers, whatever yeah. that number is, is way more than anybody ever wants to read in their lifetime or the next one. So that's how, that's the state of business books to me right now. I think you really have to nail something to deliver a delicious business book right now. That's why I like your, your cover uh, of the bats, the freak shall inherit the earth. Yeah. There's no other book cover that looks anything like that. That book should also be called, uh, please nobody buy this. Um, it did not sell especially well because it was not for corporations. Corporations saw that book and said, I'm not buying that. Right. However, individuals saw it and said, Oh my gosh, that's the thing. I wrote that for my kids. Um, who will probably never have a real normal job. They'll always have some kind of weirdo job. And so I wrote it for them and I figured if anyone else could use it, that's great. The bat cover, I, the other three covers I was pitched, I said, I want weird old bats like the bat signal. 
and I wanted that. And I got that plus three covers you would have forgot the minute you saw them. But I was in love with that, and so were the publishers. I mean, my guys at Wiley, uh, Matt and Pete and uh, Shannon, they're the best. And so it was beautiful to work with them because they believe in sort of like the passion of a good book design. So I think the book is beautiful. I just wished uh, more corporations understood that it could also apply if they squinted a little. Yeah. Well, I mean, so let me ask you that. I've always thought of myself as more of a corporate person and because I like to, I like to be told what to do is what I've always thought. But, but in reality, I have a very entrepreneurial spirit. I feel like, I mean, I I launched a podcast. I used to, uh, a previous job I worked for the entrepreneur who owned the company. It was basically just the two of us and a team of 12 contractors. I feel like, and I keep having these ideas about this next thing, this next thing. So I feel very entrepreneurial. Do entrepreneurs have a place in corporate? Can you be entrepreneurial, but still be in a corporate job? I sure think so. Um, If you just change the word entrepreneurial to innovative, um, I think it does work that way. The challenge becomes that if you haven't done corporate type work, then you don't understand things like departments. You don't understand things like having to please the CIO as well as the CFO and everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it worries uh, leadership teams inside of corporations to see books about entrepreneurship because books on entrepreneurship kind of also say, you know, quit your job and go do your own thing. Right. Um, I, you know, I definitely support people doing their own thing, but I also think that there's a lot of people who just don't want all the extra stress that comes with starting their own company. They could thrive really well as an employee with certain circumstances. And I think that, you know, uh, the way it's impacted me personally, very directly and personally, is that um, entrepreneurs, you know, of course, have a very different kind of budget than a big corporation, number one. Number two, entrepreneurs are wide open to trying a bunch of things really fast. And so if I work with a corporation, I have to kind of show them a better ramp so they can see where they're going to go to get where they're going to go. And I think that the third thing is I think corporations are finally realizing that they need to really track a bit more like an entrepreneur insofar as, you know, one example, this is kind of restaurants. You could be the cheesecake factory with 85 pages or you could be five guys. Would you like a burger or a burger with cheese? And the stats are showing, the stats are showing that, that restaurants like Five Guys are still thriving, even though overall restaurant attendance is down. And it's because that, that sense of overwhelmed choice or not really knowing why I'm going to an establishment uh, influences or causes that challenge. So to me, the way that translates to business is that a business, a big company has to look a little more entrepreneur shaped uh, to earn our attention these days. Mm. I like the idea of switching innovator with entrepreneur because I think that I think that maybe is what I'm thinking of, and yeah, innovation, it, like you can have that in any any setting, and then when you when you facilitate that and you, and you you encourage that, I mean the whole company rises. So very interesting. Um, so Chris, I, I want to get I want to get back to story. Business storytellers is the season, so talking about business is awesome, and I love that. But I want to go back to stories in general, whether it's a business story or a personal one. Do you have a story that you, you can think back to that has changed your world in some way? A, a story of my own or like a story that I read or consumed somewhere? E- either one. I mean, or both. I don't know. I'm just, I love the idea <laughs> of stories changing lives. So whatever, whatever that means to you, I just want to know what that means to you. I think stories change lives all the time. I, I mean, I think, I think if we're lucky, the stories we consume change lives. I think that, you know, I think about, when I, when I think of sort of the biggest choices and changes I made, well, I'll, I'll give you a really simple one. 
um, and it's a business example, but I, I was sitting with my then boss, Jeff Pulver, and he wanted me to run this version of a conference for him. And the ticket last, the last iteration of it was 2,500 bucks. And I said, Jeff, that's really great if corporations are buying this, but I, I have a feeling like regular, you know, non-corporate buyers want to buy this thing. We should probably charge 500 instead of 2,500. He said, I'll tell you a story. And he walked through this whole story about how you can charge 2,500 or you can charge 500, but it's still the same amount of convincing. The price is different, but it's really technically the same level of effort to get it. He goes, but then you got to do it five times as much. And I was like, oh, well, I'm going to do it my way because I'm sure I'm right. And I was totally wrong and I totally failed. Hmm. Um, I can tell you a story that sums up how entrepreneurs and innovators see the world. When I was six years old, I got a brand new bicycle. It was a Huffy Thunder Road. My parents were like upper lower class at best. We lived on this little bitty place in Augusta, Maine on Kendall Street. It was 19 and a half. That's where you know you live in a crappy house. It's got a half. Um, <laughs> I got a brand new bicycle. My parents could barely afford this thing and they got it for me and I couldn't ride it. So when they, you know, to, to my defense, my parents said, you should go out on the lawn and try to ride a bike. You know where you don't get any velocity? On a lawn. <laughs> Yes. You know where you need to ride a bike? Not on a lawn. Yeah. So I'm out there wobble, 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 and I can't ride at this thing for all. And I crack it into the side of the house, smash the front fender off this thing. Huffy Thunder Road was the first, sorry, the last bike with a banana seat before BMX bikes came. It was the last trying to be cool but didn't know it wasn't bike. Blue and orange and white looked like a racer, had the number 56 on the front. I broke the whole front fender of that bike off in lots of little plastic pieces. So my mom comes outdoors, I'm crying. And through my tears, she's like, what's going on? And I cry and I look at her very angrily and I say, move the house. Because the house was at fault, not me. I didn't drive my bicycle into the house because I didn't know how to drive a bike. The house was in the way. I think that's how entrepreneurs see the world. It's not the world the way the world should be to every other human alive. We see it like, well, it should be different. And, and it is different. It's just no one's caught up to me yet, right? So there you go. There's a story that connects to that. That's awesome. Uh, it's funny that you remember like that bike. I remember one of the first bikes that I asked for the, the Huffy freestyle expert that had the paint splatter all over and I wanted to be a, a BMX guy. And so, yeah. um, and I, I didn't move the house, but, uh, but I moved my face crashing. And so I see the world differently too. <laughs> remember when we were kids and you could pretty much almost kill yourself and it was still okay. Yeah. I, I lament that a little bit in upbringing. I, I lament the fact that, you know, there was a lot more damage dealt. You could get down to one hit point as a little kid a lot more often when I grew up. <laughs> I love the video game. <laughs> um, so I want to, I want to know from your uh, professional perspective, we talked a little bit about businesses and the, the noisy marketplace kind of, or whatever, but, um, and, and one of your, one of the things in your, in your profile is that you talk about, you're a speaker about social media marketing. How do you think social media has affected the greater craft of storytelling? I think it's been uh, negatively detrimental in a lot of states, but I also would say that the, what you can do with it, the, the best opportunity, I, I've never ever liked the phrase social media and I try never to say I know anything about it. Um, I, at every turn, try not to admit that I know a single thing about social media because to me, it'd be like being a fax marketer. Um, however, yes, those thank tools you. that I really like, um, I like brevity and social media has great tools for brevity. I, I lament that Twitter gave us 280 characters, 140 was fine. Mm -hmm. um, I like brief media. I like the Instagram stories mode. I think it's swell. Um, 
And, and by the way, Instagram is the only of the, the major social networks that had any kind of climb over the last year in the US. Uh, Facebook went down, Twitter went down, uh, Snapchat, forget about it. I've said mean things about Snapchat since it came out and I'm still right. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm not particularly religious about any particular platform. My favorite social media is email marketing from the 1990s, if anyone remembers that. <laughs> uh, but I think email marketing is alive and well if you do it well. And, and so, but I do love brevity and I think the tiny bites matter. And I think kind of getting someone to take the first little tapas bite and then the second little perfect bite. And then when they're ready, people don't want a lot to consume until they are ready. My favorite word is until, you know, blah, 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 until this happens. And, and you know, that to me, that's a storytelling magic word, right? You know, Luke Skywalker is a crappy farmer and his uncle and aunt's stupid farm drinking blue milk and whining until uh, a robot showed up and told him he had to go find an old man in a desert, right? right? Until is where everything happens. Everything to the left of until is almost like everything to the right of the word but, you know, it's, it's just one of those deals. Until is, is magic, isn't it? That, I mean, that's, that's almost where like getting back into the into story structure yeah. That's the conflict, right? That's what that's sure. where the magic happens. Sure. Or or at least the first inkling of a direction that someone wants to make a change into, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if I use uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, Miles Morales was, you know, feeling glum about his life at his new school. He didn't feel like he could get along with anyone. He could hang out with his uncle. He didn't quite understand his dad. And everything was like a typical teenager's problems until... Uh, the kingpin opens up this huge break in the world and, and suddenly Miles is, you know, bitten by a radioactive spider and discovers there's lots of other Spider-Men. Oh, crap. I got to go figure something out now. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's almost like the pre-conflict. It's the moment that says things are going to get a lot worse now and, or crazier now or busier now or whatever. And then the conflict just stacks until we resolve it. Yeah. And that's our job is to paint that picture as storytellers, whether it's sales or wherever. But yeah. This is good advice that I didn't take from a a speech consultant, Dr. Nick Morgan, great guy. Um, He said 50% of your speech should be how bad it's going to be unless you do this thing. And he says, if you can make 50% stop on the half of like, oh, bad, bad, bad. Your life is over. The industry is down. You're going to die unless you do this. And he said, the minute you turn it like that, that everyone's notebooks are all going to open at the exact same moment. When you say that, and I said, that's great advice. And I've never done it. Hmm. It almost feels negative though. Like it, like it, like it almost feels pessimistic, but yeah, I, I see it working though. Think about how your, your, think about how anxiety works. Think about how suspense works, right? If, if, you know, um, the, what's that the line it's like if they show you a gun in the first act that gun better be used by the third act. You know, uh, Hitchcock would say, I love to put a bomb in a building underneath the chair of a young kid and then ignore it for a very long time, except you know it's there and nobody knows it's there and blah, blah, blah. And that sort of ratcheting up of tension of that bomb's going to go off. And, you know, feeling that anxiety and then the release of that anxiety is what storytelling is supposed to be um, or suspense at least, right? So depending on what story you're telling, there are these age old tools that really help. What, what people don't want is a story without conflict. Uh, it never sticks in our head. There's, there's never uh, Luke Skywalker without Darth Vader, right? So you need that conflict to have a real story. Mm-hmm. 
And that, and I would guess that transfers into business storytelling, right? As a business storyteller, you have to have that conflict somewhere. You need a villain, right? If I'm going to go and tell a bunch of sales guys, they've got to improve their jobs. Then I've got to say, look, Tesla is eating our lunch right now and they're not even a great car. They just have a good story. And you know, it doesn't matter what you say out there. If you're not getting more people to buy this car, we're going to have to start letting people go. You know, you have to have a villain. The villain's Tesla in that story, right? Mm -hmm. Tesla's a wonderful company. Good people, I'm sure. I'm sure the cars are great. I don't know. But if you don't have a villain, if you don't have any conflict, if you don't have anything to push against or friction, then you're in a challenge to tell a story that's going to move somebody to take an action. Uh, you can never go into a sales entity and say, you guys are great. Here's how to be greater. No <laughs> one wants it. Greater. That's good. Uh, Chris has been absolutely educational and inspirational, man. I appreciate your time. Uh, I'm going to get to my last question here in a second. Before I do that, I want to give you an opportunity. Where's the best place for people to connect with you? Chrisbrogan.com is probably a good starter place. I always say once you get there though, and I force you to try to get my newsletter, get the newsletter because yeah. one, it's the best thing I do every week. And two, you can hit reply at any time and it goes right to me. And I love to talk to people. I can vouch for that since 2012 or whatever, when we first connected, man, that's, that's been, you, you absolutely reply. So. 11, but who's counting? Is that, okay. That's right. That's, all right. Is it already, it's already 19, isn't it? Man. Yeah. So we have eight years of history with this, Dan. We're practically old. I love it, man. I appreciate it. All right. So Chris, if, if, if it was even possible to do this, but if somebody said to you tomorrow, you're done being a storyteller, what would the last story that you would want to go out on? What would be your encore? It would have to be a story about the, we all come one to a pack, you know, that the age of mass, everything is over and that we all come one to a pack and that, you know, you are exactly who you should be right now. And companies need to reach you for who you are and you have to connect with people because of who you are and not hide behind the things you're worried that other people won't like about you. I like it. Encouraging. That's good, man. Well, thanks for sharing that last story. Thanks for sharing your time with me today and uh, being with the Storytellers Network, my friend. Dan, thank you so much for having me. So there you have it. Once again, thank you so much, Chris, for joining me. Uh, I hope you go connect with him at the links in the show notes, chrisbrogan.com and more. Uh, that's all in the show notes. And if you liked this episode and got something out of it, please consider sharing it with someone who might also benefit from, from the episode. Uh, post it to social media, email to somebody, text it, just share it. Go to the little share button on your podcast player of choice and share with somebody. I really appreciate that. And consider leaving a review maybe. That of, of course helps. It may not, uh, may not be a whole lot of effort to do that, but it means the world to me. So thank you very much for those who have left reviews. And of course, go to the storytellersnetwork.com for all the information about the show and about storytelling and how to contact me as well if you want to have a conversation. So thank you very much for listening. I appreciate you. Until next time, here's to telling our stories and having stories to tell. Cheers. Cheers.